Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? We invite your attention, please, back to Judges. We started looking at Judge Gideon last week. We're going to continue and hopefully conclude that look at Gideon uh, today. We want to look at Judges starting with chapter 6, verse 33, and we're going to go through chapter 7, verse 15. And if we have the time, we're going to look at the very tail end of the Gideon story, which is found in chapter 8. Uh, there's something interesting as we go through these various judges, uh, particularly when we, when we look at Gideon. Gideon is what I would like to call, and you've heard me use this expression before, he's an anti-hero. He's, he's not really a hero. Uh, uh, and, and that's why I want to get to chapter 8, uh, and when we close him out, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, there are other anti-heroes in Scripture. The most famous one to me is Jacob. I swear when I get to heaven, God and I are going to have a talk <laughs> about Jacob. Well, you're going to have eternity. You might as well talk about something. So we're, 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 we're going to talk about Jacob. But Jacob is an anti-hero. Jacob is a scoundrel. And yet the Lord continues to bless him and use him. There are other anti-heroes found within Judges that we're going to look at. Jephthah is one. Samson is one. By anti-hero, let, let, let me put the kindest face on that that I can put. And Jacob doesn't fall in that category. Ain't nothing kind about Jacob at all. But, 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 but this is what I mean by anti-hero. Clearly, these are human beings who are subject to human weakness and human indulgence and yet God blesses them anyway. Now, here's the good thing about anti-heroes. Here's what you ought to take away from that. You ought to be glad that God will use anti-heroes because it reminds us that we don't have to be perfect for God to use us. May I please, and, and the camera's just going to be on me, so don't worry about it. May I please see the hands of all the perfect people in here? I got one person who waved their hand. Waved, and, then, and then they put it down real fast because they don't want you to look around and see. Nobody in here is perfect. We all have problems. We all have difficulties. We all have weaknesses. We all have shortcomings. And not all of them are accidental. No. Amen. No. And yet God blesses us anyway. So there is something encouraging about Gideon's story. 
and about Samson's story and about Jephthah's story and certainly about Jacob's story, that God can use imperfect people in order to accomplish wonderful things. We are not celebrating Gideon's weaknesses. We are celebrating the character of a God who can bless us and use us in spite of our weaknesses. And we are not ignoring his weaknesses. Because when you tend to ignore things, they come back to haunt you. You've got, we've already concluded that with the exception of one person, everybody in here has a problem. So, if you know you got a problem, doesn't it just seem like you ought to work on the problem that you've got? It's not enough to ignore the problem that you have. You need to find ways to, to, to fix the problems. You need to find ways to reduce the problems. You need to, to develop a plan, a scheme, a means by which the problem becomes less and less and less. And that takes hard work. So you can't just look past the problem and say, well, I'm 99%, I'm okay. Or I'm, or, or, or I'm 85%, whatever percentage you want to put on you. I, I, I'm 80% okay, so we're not going to worry about the other 20%. No, we, we have to be willing to, to look at where we're short, look at where we are weak, and then we have to try to find ways to improve that. And that's what we see with Gideon. We, we looked last week at the first part of chapter 6 of Gideon, uh, where, where God calls him, and Gideon starts off with a complaint, and then when he realizes that it's God who's talking to him, he goes from complaining to backing away and saying, I can't do anything, and then God has to show him that it's me who's talking to you, and I'm the one who've called you, and, 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 and Gideon recognizes that he has been in the presence of God. That's a good thing. And you would think that if he's been in the presence of God, that Gideon is ready to move forward, right? Not what happens. Skip down to Gideon chapter 6 and look at verse 33. All the Midianites and the Malachites, the Easterners, got together, crossed the river, and made camp in the valley of Jezreel. God's spirit came over Gideon. He blew his ram's horn trumpet, and the Abizrites came out, ready to follow him. He dispatched messengers all through Manasseh, calling them to the battle, also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. They all came. Gideon said to God, if this is right, if you're using me to save Israel, as you've said, then look, I'm placing a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If dew is on the fleece only, but the floor is dry, then I know that you will use me to save Israel, as you said. That's what happened when he got up early the next morning. He wrung out the fleece, enough dew to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be impatient with me, but let me say one more thing. I want to try another time with the fleece. 
But this time, let the fleece stay dry while the dew drenches the ground. God made it happen that very night. Only the fleece was dry while the ground was wet with dew. All right, we skipped over a couple of verses. We skipped over verses 25 through 27. That was Gideon's first attack uh, where he went with 10 of his servants and he destroyed an altar that was built to an idol god called Baal. He cut down the Asherah pole that had been erected beside it. And, and so he has already seen the hand of God at work in his life, right? You with me? Then when we read in, in, in verse 33, it says God's spirit, do you see that? Came over Gideon. Let me say a couple of things about that real quick. First, I've told you this before. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is very different from the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So this is very significant. When it says God's spirit came over Gideon, that's something unique. That's something that happens to Gideon that does not happen to everybody around him. Every Christian in this room has the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has the Holy Spirit because the work of the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost is a pervasive thing. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised it and he secured it through his resurrection on that Sunday morning. But for those in the Old Testament, ancient Hebrew uh, uh, leaders to say that the Spirit is upon me, as Isaiah says, or as is recorded here, God's Spirit came upon him. That's a unique movement of the Holy Spirit in the life of that individual that not everybody in the group has. Remember when we were looking at Deborah a couple of weeks ago and, 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 and Barak said, I ain't going nowhere unless you go? because I know that the Spirit is with you. That's what happened here. The Spirit comes upon Gideon. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit with you, and if the Holy Spirit has already led you to a successful victory in one battle, and if the Holy Spirit has told you, I'm sending you up to fight against these folk, do you really think that you have to say to God, thank you for your Holy Spirit, but before I go, I need you to show me something. <laughs> because that's essentially what Gideon does. God's Spirit came over Gideon. He blew his ram's horn and, and he gets all these soldiers together, not just from one tribe, but from several tribes. They come and they have 32,000 men ready to go into battle. Now, 32,000 is not as many as they are going to face, but it's a whole lot of folk. It's a whole lot of people that he has on, on his side of the battle that God has brought to him, and God's Spirit is in him, and God is ready for them to go. And Gideon says, well, hold up a minute. Before I go, I need you to do something for me. Read what he says again, because I find what he says interesting. Gideon said to God, verse 36, if this is right, if this is right, if this is right, if you are using me to save Israel 
as you said, as you have said. Do you hear all of that? Yeah. Oh, or, or, or is it just me? If this is right, and if you have called me to do what you said you called me to do, then prove it to me. Now, before you get mad with Gideon, before you shake your head with Gideon and say, poor, poor Gideon, let me ask you, has the Lord called you to something? And has the Lord given you his assurance that he's with you? And yet, with his call and with his assurance, have you said to God, show me something else? I need a little more. I'm not quite sure. I, I know you said. He says, as you have said. Who is you? God. So, God, I know you told me this. But how do you get to say but if you know that God is the one who told you? Look, I, 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 I just want to run a little test with you. I got this fleece of wool, and I'm going to lay it out in a field. And when I get up in the morning and I go out in the field, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that the ground is dry, but that the fleece is full of dew. You do that and I'm good. In spite of the fact that you called me, in spite of the fact that you told me, in spite of the fact that you have filled me with your spirit, do this, and I'm good. How many of us are guilty of telling God, you haven't shown me enough? I need more. I ain't looking for true confessions, but I am looking for you to think about it. So, the next morning, Gideon goes out to his fleece of wool, walks through the ground. The ground is dry, gets to the wool, and the wool is dripping with dew. So much dew that when he wrung it out, the, the, the moisture from the dew fills a bowl with water. And we don't know how big the bowl was, but it was big enough. And then Gideon says, let me try this another way. That was good. You, 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 you did good that time. Let me flip it. Now, in the morning, I'm, I'm going to leave the same fleece out here. In the morning, I want the ground to be wet. And I want the fleece to be dry. And in the morning, the ground was wet with dew. It was sloppy wet. And the fleece 
was bone dry. How often are we guilty of telling God after he has shown us, after he has called us, after he has indwelled us, after he has infilled us, how often do we tell God, I still ain't sure? And if that's the case, I would ask the question, where exactly is your faith? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For we must be sure that we know that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Is it faith if you got to see something first? Not according to the definition, not, not, not according to what the scripture says. And, and, and yet, we constantly, repeatedly say to God, I trust you, but show me something. Bible says that Jesus comes upon nine of his disciples dealing with a man who has a son who's dealing with epileptic seizures. Scripture doesn't say epilepsy, but most people conclude based upon the description that they were epileptic seizures. Jesus and, and three of his disciples had been up on a mountain where they had witnessed his transfiguration. When they come back down from the mountain, this man has confronted Jesus' disciples with this young man that he brought to them seeking his healing. When Jesus comes, there, there, there's a crowd there, and, and, and there's an argument that has broken out. It's, and, and Jesus says, what's, what's the situation? And the man says, I came looking for you uh, because my son has these seizures. And, and they throw him on the ground, and, and he convulses violently. And I knew that you could heal him if I brought him to you. Couldn't find you, but I did find your disciples. And, 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 and when I found your disciples, I asked them to do it, but they couldn't. And, and before Jesus heals the young man, he looks at his disciples and he, and, and he makes a statement of disapproval and disappointment. Faithless is what he calls them. Faithless. How long? Must I put up with you? Meaning, how long must I put up with the minuscule level of your faith, the, 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 the lack of faith that exists within you? Do you hear Jesus saying something in your ear from time to time? Do you hear Jesus asking you how long? How long? Lord, just show me your way. And then he shows you, and you, Lord, just show, I just showed you. 
I just spoke to you. I just, I just pointed you in the right direction. How long before you're ready and willing and able to respond? What must you see before you are convinced that it is me who's calling you to do it? Gideon ain't the only one. Moses saw a bush that burned but was not consumed and heard the bush talk. For me, that would be enough. But when the bush talked to Moses, and when the bush said to Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt, Moses said to the burning bush that talked, show me something else. What is it about us that we claim to have faith, and yet our behavior show something else entirely. Well, that's Gideon's problem, but it's also our problem. We have a constant need for reassurance. Contrasted to that, we can celebrate the fact that our God has abundant sufficiency so that anything that he asks us to do, he also equips us to do. And any test that we ask of God, he's capable of performing. There is nothing, Scripture says, that is too hard for God. But it would be a wonderful thing, and the church would be a far more powerful entity in our communities and in our world if we stopped always going back to God saying, are you sure? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Are you sure? As I have loved you, so should you love one another. Are you sure? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Are you sure? If a man strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Also, I've already got you, some of y'all shaking your head saying, no. Are you sure? If a man compels you to walk one mile, go with him a second. Are you sure? We instead of doing what God says, we're constantly looking back saying, did you really say that? Did I hear you correctly? Is this really what you want me to do? God wants a church that will do what he said without asking. Just do it. Y'all used to put bumper stickers on the back of your cars. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. But y'all don't do that no more. And not because you have a hard time scraping bumper stickers off the back of your car. Because you don't really mean that. Because God has told you enough stuff that you ain't doing. Because either you don't believe him or you're looking for a reason not to do it. 
Gideon says, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Then he says, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. And all of that happens. But now God wants to show Gideon something. Skip over into chapter 7. Jerub Baal, Gideon, got up early the next morning. All his troops right there with him. They set up camp at Herod's spring. The camp of Midian was in the plain north of them near the hill of Moreh. God said to Gideon, you have too large an army with you. I can't turn Midian over to them like this. They'll take all the credit saying I did it all myself and forget about me. Make a public announcement. Anyone afraid, anyone who has any qualms at all may leave Mount Gilead now and go home. 22 companies headed for home. 10 companies were left. God said to Gideon, there's still too many. Take them down to the stream and I'll make a final cut. When I say this one goes with you, he'll go. When I say this one doesn't go, he won't go. So Gideon took the troops down to the stream. God said to Gideon, everyone who laps with his tongue the way a dog laps set on one side. And everyone who kneels to drink, drinking with his face to the water, set to the other side. 300 lapped with their tongues from their cupped hands. All the rest knelt to drink. God said to Gideon, I'll use the 300 men who lapped at the stream to save you and give Gideon into your hands. All the rest may go home. It sounds to me like God got irritated with Gideon. Because remember, God was the one who told him, assemble an army. Mm -hmm. And God was the one who told him that you're going to go up and that you're going to defeat Midian as one person. And then Gideon assembled the army. And they were ready to go. But then Gideon threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing and said, I need you to prove it to me. Not once but twice. And God said, okay, I did the two things that you asked me to do. Now I'm going to show you who's really in charge. Understand now, with 32,000, he already had far less people than he was facing. And God said, you got too many. Go throughout the camp and, and separate out anybody who's scared or anybody who simply says, I don't want to go. Find, find, find all of them and then send them home. And he did that. And when he got through, 22,000 went home. 22,000 out of 32,000, roughly two out of three went home. And he's left with one third of what he had. And God said, you still got too many. Take them down to the stream. And those that lick up the water from the stream like dogs 
put them on one side. And those that are too prissy to lick up the water, like dogs. Though, those that have to show their home training and do it the way mama taught them to do it. Send them home. And what he was left with was 300 folk. And God said, that'll do. I'm going to win this battle with 300, not with 32,000. Now, he tells Gideon why. Before he whittled them down, he told him why he's doing what he's doing. He's saying, because I don't want y'all to think that y'all did anything. I, I, I want it to be overwhelmingly, abundantly clear beyond any shadow of a doubt when this victory takes place that it had nothing to do with you, but everything to do with me. He said, if, if I leave y'all with 32,000, y'all going to go around telling stories till you die about how we whipped up on the Midianites with just 32,000 men. He said, I, I don't even want y'all to get them stories ready to tell. Like them fish stories. <laughs> See, he, he said, he said I, I, I don't even want y'all to, to formulate that in your minds. So, 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 so we're going to whittle this number down. And so he took 300 out of 32,000. That's roughly, in fact, if, if I'm doing my math right, and I know I got math teachers in here, and if it ain't in here, y'all watching, that's 1%, less than 1% of, 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 of what he started with. Did, did I do the math? I got math teachers. Did I do it right? Just nod yes or no. Okay, I did it right. Okay, good. Because I could take out my phone and do it on the calculator. But that, that's what 1%. Of, of what he started with. And God says, that's all I need. That's all I need. And what this shows us is that God's greatness is the cure to our inadequacies and our fear. It should also be the preventative for any pride and arrogance on our part. Because when victories are won, it is not us who won. It is God who won. And so, when God gives us the victory, our praise should not go to us. Our praise should go to God. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Who else you got to praise? It's not about you. It's about what God does with you, through you, in spite of you, 
in the case of Gideon, this is not just with, and this is not just through, but this is in spite of. I get the feeling that God was offended. How dare you put me to a test? I called you, and you're going to put me to a test. And then when I passed the first test, you act like it was suspect, so you made me take a makeup exam. I'm going to show you who's really in charge. It's not you. It's me. This reduction was for God's glory and to show man that he had nothing to be proud of. That's a, a powerful thing. But it's a life lesson for us. It's not about us. But it's about God working in us. Verse 8, after Gideon took all their provisions and trumpets, he sent all the Israelites home. He took up his position with the 300. The camp of Midian stretched out below him in the valley. That night, God told Gideon, get up and go down to the camp. I've given it to you. If you have any doubts about going down, go down with Pura, your armor bearer. When you hear what they're saying, you'll be bold and confident. He and his armor bearer, Pura, went down near the place where sentries were posted. Midian and Amalek, all the Easterners, were spread out on the plain like a swarm of locusts, and their camels passed counting like grains of sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just in time to hear a man tell his friend a dream. He said, I had this dream. A loaf of barley bread tumbled into the Midianite camp. It came to the tent and hit it so hard it collapsed. The tent fell. His friend said, this has to be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has turned Midian, the whole camp, over to him. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he went to his knees before God in prayer. Then he went back to the Israelite camp and said, get up and get going. God has just given us the Midianite army. Now, you're going to sit there and say, praise the Lord. He gave them the Midianite army. You know what I say? You mean to tell me after all that God did for you, it took the enemy saying it? Yeah. Before you believe it? I'm not taking God's word for it. But I will take the enemy's word for it. Do you hear that? Do you see that? God said, go down there. He said, but if you doubt, listen to what the enemy has to say. It's a pure, it's a poor, 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 poor Christian who won't listen to God, but will listen to the enemy. God said it, that, that, that sounds good, but I ain't sure. But if the enemy says it, then that's enough. Let's see now, how many tests has Gideon put the Lord to? 
when, 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 when Gideon, go back to last week, when Gideon first met the Lord, or when, or when the Lord first showed himself to Gideon, Gideon didn't believe that it was the Lord then. He said, stay here, and I'm going to go fix some stuff, and, and, and I'm going to bring it back. And, and he came back with some unleavened bread, and, 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 and the Lord uh, struck the unleavened bread with fire and consumed the whole thing. And Gideon said, well, I know that the Lord is here. And then God leads Gideon into a battle where they tear down all of the, the, the idol worshiping places, which is symbolic. God is saying, if you're going to follow me, then you got to let the idols go. So, so, so the idols are sent away. And then God assembles an army for him out of 32,000 people from four different tribes. And Gideon says, I see the army, but I still ain't sure. So I tell you what, I want you to, to, to make this fleece wet while the ground is dry. And God does that and then says, that's good now. Flip the thing. And, and tomorrow morning I want the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. And God does that. And then God gets mad. And God says, let me show you what you really need. You got too many folk. 32,000 is too many. And he cut it from 32,000 to 10,000. He said, you still got too many. Cut it down to 300. Gideon scared out of his wits. But God says, you just sit here and watch. And then he gets him up in the middle of the night and he sends him down there to where the enemy is. And he says, don't even take the 300. Just take one with you. Just one. Did you see that? 32,000 to two. Gideon and Pura. 32,000 to two. And God says, you still don't believe me, so listen to what the enemy says. And he sneaks into the camp, and he listens to the enemy whispering about Gideon. And it's only when the enemy says something that he's willing to go back and say, come on, let's go. We're going to win the fight. How many of y'all listening to the enemy instead of listening to God? But how many of y'all do you, why, why does it take the enemy talking to you before you'll believe anything? How is it that you can say, I love the Lord, he heard my cry and pitied every groan, and yet I ain't going to believe what God says, but I will believe what the enemy has to say. I tell you, he's an anti-hero. He doesn't trust God. God called him. God indwells him. God infills him. God reassures him. And yet it's only when the enemy says something that he's willing to do. Has God called you? Does God indwell you? Does God infill you? Has God reassured you? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for me. How many reassurances do you need? And yet you won't listen to God, but when the enemy says something, you'll listen to the enemy. 
Well, he goes back, he gets, his, he gets the 298 others and the 300 of them come in and they rout the camp. They destroy the enemy. God gives them the victory. And that's a wonderful thing because it reminds us that God doesn't need much. Truth be told, God don't need nothing from us. The fact that God chooses to use us ought to make you feel good. Ought to make you feel privileged because God don't need you. We preach Sunday from, 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 from the passage in, in John where, where Jesus feeds the multitude. And, 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 and Jesus says to Philip, with all these folk out there, Philip, what do you think we ought to do? And then John puts it in the text. He says he was asking only to see what Philip was going to say because he already knew what he was going to do. He wanted to see where Philip was. You do know that when God asks us questions, it ain't because God needs information. God wants to know where you are. After the man and the woman committed sin in the Garden of Eden, and God came in the cool of the day looking for them, they weren't anywhere to be found. They, They had hidden themselves. And God cries out, Adam, where are you? It ain't because he didn't know where Adam was. He wanted Adam to know where Adam was. Not physically, not geographically, where he was spiritually. God don't need your information. God already knows. God wants you to know where you are. So, 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 after all of this, God gives them the victory. But that's not the end of the story. Skip down to Gideon chapter 8. Look at verse 22. This is why I say Gideon is an anti-hero. As if uh, I haven't given you enough information on that. The Israelites said, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. You have saved us from Midian's tyranny. Gideon said, I most certainly will not rule over you, nor will my son. God will reign over you. Then Gideon said, but I do have one request. Give me, each of you, an earring that you took as plunder. Ishmaelites wore gold earrings, and the men all had their pockets full of them. They said, of course, they're yours. They spread out a blanket, and each man threw his plundered earrings on it. The gold earrings that Gideon had asked for weighed about 43 pounds, and that didn't include the crescents and pendants, the purple robes worn by the Midianite kings and the ornaments hung around the necks of their camels. Gideon made the gold into a sacred ephod and put it on display in his hometown, Ophrah. All Israel prostituted itself there. Gideon and his family, too, were seduced by it. 
Midian's tyranny was broken by the Israelites. Nothing more was heard from them. The land was quiet for 40 years in Gideon's time. So, after God gives him the victory, after God gives him the victory in such a spectacular fashion, in such a miraculous way, the people come to Gideon and they say, rule over us, become our king. And Gideon says, no, I'm not going to do that. God is going to be the one who rules over you. And if he had stopped there, we'd be fine. We, we, we could say, and they all lived happily ever after. But that's not where it stops. Instead, Gideon asks for a reward. Tell you what, I don't want to be king, but I do want to be rich. Y'all took all this stuff as plunder. Give me an earring. Give me some of the gold that you took off of the Midianites. 43 pounds of gold. And he didn't put it in his pocket. Instead, he made it into a graven image. Y'all remember your Ten Commandments, right? I, I don't have to flip back to, to Exodus to, to, to read to you the Ten Commandments, do I? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make unto me any graven images. And what does Gideon do? He takes 43 pounds of gold and he shapes it into a graven image. And instead of the people worshiping the God who delivered them, yeah. Yeah. they worship the image. And the scripture uses an interesting term. They were seduced by it. Particularly in the Old Testament, it's important that we recognize that the corruption of leadership causes the downfall of the people. In every, this is more true in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament is a national God. When God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to make of you a nation and all other nations will come to worship me through you. When, when Israel, its various tribes, or the nation of Israel is punished, the punishment starts because there was corruption with the leadership. And the corrupt leadership led to corrupt people. And the corruption within the people caused estrangement from God. So like it or not, Leaders have to rise to a level where they can lead. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that what we used to say when, when we used to recite the covenant? That, that we would keep ourselves, what was the word, circumspect from the world? 
In other words, that we, that, that we would present ourselves different from the world. Do you know that it's hard to play in mud and not get muddy? It's real hard. Now, 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 if some of you all have mastered the art of playing in mud and not getting muddy, please tell me how you did it. I'd be curious in knowing how, how, you, how you accomplished that. What I have discovered is if you hang around mud long enough, and with mud, it doesn't have to be that long, you're going to find yourself muddy. Gideon said, I don't want to be king, but I do want this gold. And, and, and I'm going to take this gold and I'm going to fashion it into a graven image. They call it an ephod. It's really a graven image. And it says that the people were seduced. by Now, now y'all know how the word seduction is usually used, right? It's usually used in terms of intimacy. And, and, and so... The, the, the use of the term seduction suggests to me that it wasn't just an external thing, but that it was an internal thing. That, 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 that corruption wasn't just on the outside, but corruption found its way into the deepest recesses of who those people are. And that's the danger of seduction. Seduction doesn't just stop with getting you on the outside. Seduction works its way all the way through us. So, so, so that Gideon and his family and all the people became seduced. He named one of his sons Abimelech. Now, do you know what the name Abimelech means? My father is king. You did your study, and that's right, Ms. Carter. That's exactly what it means. So, while he did not want to take the title king, he named his son, my daddy is the king. That's what seduction does. Seduction will have you saying one thing with your lips, but saying something else with your behavior, with your mannerism, with the things that you chase after. Gideon is an anti-hero. God used him. God brought his people out of Midian bondage through him. But let's be clear, it wasn't Gideon who did it. It was God who did it. I started by saying we ought to be happy. We ought to be able to celebrate the fact that God can use imperfect people because all of us are imperfect. Let me end with this. While God can use imperfect people, our goal should be to be perfect. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all has become new. So don't you sit there and relish 
in your old person. Strive to be the new person that God called you to be. We call it the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, the whole point behind the podcast was to give us the opportunity uh, to engage in meaningful conversation uh, with people about topics that we would find to be interesting and yet topics that would not normally fit within a Sunday worship experience or within a midweek Bible study. Let's face it, in, in, in a traditional church, uh, the, 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 the primary means of communicating that we have uh, is either through Bible study or through worship. Uh, and uh, we try to do the best that we can to speak to relevant issues, contemporary issues in those venues. But it's limiting. And, and uh, I wanted something that would break free from the fetters that worship and Bible study place on you. I wanted to be able to have a means, a medium by which we could discuss with a little bit more depth, at a little bit more length, the things that are going on in our community and discuss them with people who are making a difference in our community. Uh, I wanted the opportunity to explore. I wanted the opportunity to learn. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, I'm convinced of that I don't know everything and, and that I need to know more than what I do. And in order for that to take place, then I need to expose myself to different ways of thinking, to different generations of thinking, uh, and to try to glean from others the best of their information that would help me to make myself better and to make Shiloh a better place. And so we decided that we would uh, launch the Thrive Podcast, and uh, we're now in our second year. I think that it has grown, it has expanded, uh, and uh, I think that it's been a beneficial uh, platform for us to explore different ways of thinking and different ideas, uh, and the feedback that we have gotten about it uh, has been nothing but positive. We want to expand on it, we want to build on it, we're, we've gone from one drop a week on Mondays to five drops a week, Monday through Friday. It allows us the opportunity uh, to get our midweek Bible study periods out on a different platform, to get our Sunday worship experiences out on a different platform. It helps the church to become more relevant and more regular in the lives of the people who listen and who uh, view the podcast. And so we're very happy about it. Uh, I don't think that we've begun to scratch the surface of what we can do with it. Much like anything, it's a new toy. We're taking it out, we're experimenting with it, trying to see what we can do with it and, and how we can make it most beneficial to us. But I think thus far, we're doing a pretty good job with it. It's a new year. Are you looking for a church home? A church that will be welcoming to you and to your family? 
to your children, a church that is interested in meeting the needs of people. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm inviting you to come and share with us. Come check us out. You'll be glad that you did. always a prayer aspect uh, because anytime you do something for the Lord uh, you always want to seek his guidance uh, after uh, after praying though it's, it's a combination of things because uh, one you want to, to try to unify your audience uh, you want to unify them in a way that doesn't offend anybody but at the same time you want to be able to offer like a fresh experience uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of the the, the, the people that uh, we're ministering to goes into that that factor uh, like for instance on first Sunday, uh, it's a mass choir Sunday, at least at, at the 11 a.m. service. So I'm primarily focused more on the older generation. Uh, and we're, we're more inclined to do uh, material that, that, that's dear to their hearts. Uh, you hear a lot, of, a lot more hymns on first Sunday uh, as opposed to maybe like the second Sunday. Second Sunday is, is ge uh, geared more towards our youth, our young adult, uh, and our children. So. There'll be a, uh, the music will change a little bit. It'll be a little more contemporary, a little bit more progressive. But at the same time, uh, not to alienate uh, anyone, we'll still come back and we'll have at least one hymn uh, to kind of get everybody uh, involved. And I think at the end of the day, it's uh, it's that healthy mixture that kind of sets even this church apart from uh, from other churches, uh, other services, even even other denominations. Uh, we're not afraid. To, uh, to do contemporary music and in the same tone do a, a spiritual or a, a good old hymn, something like Amazing Grace or How, How Great Thou Art. Uh, and I think that all goes into our preparation process. The fact that we're just not afraid, we, we, we'll try anything. <laughs>